Hi there, I'm Pastor Billy. There are a lot of ways to engage with us, but I wanted to take a moment today to thank you for listening here on the Harrisonburg Nazarene Church Podcast. Also, you can now search for our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. For more about the church, please check out our website, abeaconofhope.org. That's abeaconofhope.org. You can also catch us live on Facebook each Sunday morning at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Merry Christmas. I want to apologize for those of you who are really excited about Pastor Roger preaching this morning only to discover that he was just introducing me. (laughs) But uh, I noticed that Pastor Joe was pretty gracious to the Ohio State fans and how tired they were this morning. Um, Not sure what happened there. Michael Cole might be able to help us with that. But uh, I'm grateful to be with you this morning. Uh, We're going to be in Luke chapter 2. We're going to conclude our Here Comes Heaven series. Uh, We're going to conclude this series with a story about Jesus' childhood. It's really a unique story in that it's the only story of his childhood that we have in Scripture. Now, if you're tradition or you may have somewhere come across the Apocrypha, there are some stories of his childhood in there, but they're kind of extreme, they're kind of out there, and those don't really hold up to um, hard criticism. So, for what we affirm is what God wants us to have is His Word. This is really our only revelation of what Jesus' childhood may have been like. Uh, so we're going to be in Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 41. Uh, just so you know where we're headed, my style, I like to read a couple verses, then pause back and put some color to it and bring it out and put ourselves into the text and just kind of just really get a sense of what was happening as Luke was offering. So we'll go a couple verses, we'll talk about it, And then we're going to look there afterwards about maybe what Luke's intentions were in recording this specific piece, uh, and maybe what uh, in 2019, almost 2020, uh, we can glean from that. So if you're ready, let's jump in, and we'll see what the Lord has to say. So beginning in chapter 2, verse 41, it says, Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover, When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. So what we need to do to get into the sense of the feeling of the remainder of this text is to understand first century Jewish life. So every male was expected to show up to the temple for three festivals a year. Uh, This Passover was certainly a big deal. It's commemorating or celebrating uh, the exodus out of Egypt. And so this is a huge deal. Very exciting times. Everybody's happy. It's kind of like Uh, We're getting ready to celebrate New Year's, so Jerusalem has been just throbbing with people like Times Square is going to be in just a couple days. Um, But every Jewish male was in charge of bringing his family. Like, like, you got to come, you got to go. So, Scripture tells us that they were living in Nazareth, uh, so that would put him about 70 miles away from Jerusalem. So, in our minds, it would be like having to walk to Winchester. Uh, Now, We wouldn't have 81 in those days, or cars, or bicycles, so we're walking, we're using uh, animals to cart our stuff, because we have to pack for several days, because it's a multi-day trip there. We're going to be there for a few days, it's going to take a couple days to get back home. Now, some trips down 81 make you think you wish you would have packed for a couple days, because it's just that bad of traffic. Uh, But in that context, it was a big deal. They would have been packing up the family, packing up enough supplies, camping gear, the whole nine yards, putting it on their beast of burden, and headed 70 miles, a several-day journey to get there. The anticipation would have been growing as they traveled with community. Um, Whole neighborhoods would go together, and this promoted safety on this journey and community together. Uh, They could share just kind of a, a pullback from the work of the grind of daily life. 
while women weren't necessarily required to go, we can get a, a glimpse of Mary's faithfulness and that she too is going. Uh, we've heard through the text and through the teaching this Advent series uh, about her faithfulness, and, and that's true here today, that she makes the journey. This was not an easy trip. I, I have no desire to walk to Winchester from here today <laughs> for much of anything. But they put forth the effort. They deemed it important. They took their kids to church, as was the law. So, picking back up in our text in verse 43... It says, after the festival is over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. But when they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. Now, that, I know that reads like the parenting fail of the millennium, like we just lost Jesus like all the shepherds, all the magi, all that stuff that happened back there, oh my gosh, we just lost him. Like, what are we going to do? But we've got to pull ourselves back to first century. So a 12-year-old in that time would have been a lot more accustomed to work and responsibility maybe than what we are today because we have things like Walmart and the mall where we can acquire the daily needs pretty easily. In that time, it was all work. And so a 12-year-old would have had much more responsibility uh, maybe than what we're accustomed to thinking. And we can see a glimpse in there. They had traveled on for a day, so they, were, they had celebrated. It was in the afterglow. They're headed home, and they don't become alarmed that Jesus is not right there with them. So that tells me that he must have been faithful and trustworthy, even as a young boy, because if you have a kid that's into mischief, you're kind of wanting to constantly check on what they're doing, what they're into, but we get kind of a glimpse here that Jesus would have been trustworthy and obedient and that they really didn't worry about not seeing him all day. Ah, he's back there with Uncle Eddie and Aunt Sue. Like, just not a concern. They trusted him. They believed that he had their best interest in mind, too. Um, but as that night came and he didn't show up to camp that night, they, Mary, as a mother, would have been a little concerned because we just lost Jesus. Um, I, they, we imagine that they camped that night. It would have been no point in trying to risk the dangerous trip back home. Um, she was a worried mother, no doubt. So let's pick back up in our text uh, at verse 46. It says, After three days, so they went out a day, and they had to travel back a day, and they would have spent a day looking. So remember, Jerusalem is packed. Like It would be trying to find someone in Times Square this weekend. Like It's packed. So after three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and at his answers. So what we get here is kind of a glimpse of a first century breakout session. Uh, the teachers of the law on that day would have taken a break from their normal duties. It's festival, it's celebration season. So they would have been kind of in little offshoots from the main temple courts, teaching and diving deep into the law and the prophets and teaching others. You know, they didn't have podcasts and email and internet to gain all this extra scriptural knowledge that we can take advantage of today. They had to learn it one-on-one -on -one and by contact. And that's what was going on here. And that's where we find Jesus sitting, listening to the teachers and asking them questions. And we have to be careful here not to assign him any uh, supernatural ability at this point necessarily because our text today is even bookended by verses or scripture that says he had to grow and develop and mature. He wasn't born the instant being able to speak and prophesy as a newborn. Like He had to grow and develop. 
And so we have to just use a touch of caution here today not to assume that here he's railing on the religious elite like he would be in 30 years. He's a boy who is attentive and just engaging in the conversation, and you can tell he's really soaking in the words of the teachers and the prophets and just loving it. And that's surprising him. It says they were amazed. And the original word there means they were kind of astounded, amazed, bewildered even. Like here's this 12-year-old boy who really handles the Scripture well and has a grip on it. And something else to consider here is that Jesus was from Nazareth. He would have had what our equivalent of a southern draw because Nazareth and Galilee was known to have their own dialect, their own draw. So it would be like someone from Louisiana or the deep south coming up here and engaging us in conversation. We can instantly tell where they're from. Or if we, who think we don't have an accent, go north, everybody up there quickly tells us that we're from the south. That's kind of what you have here. So as these teachers are not only looking at a little boy who's engaging the scriptures well, he has a Hicktown accent. And they're just amazed. They're going, wow, who is this kid? And it just says they were amazed at his understanding. And so picking back up in our text this morning at verse 48, verse 48, it says, when his parents saw him, they were astonished. So the teachers were amazed and his parents were astonished. The astonished there has a bit of angst with it. It's similar words, but there's just a nervousness and anticipation like a mother that just lost the Messiah. There's angst in that. And it says that they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? He asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. So taken back by this whole episode... It says that Mary and Joseph were astonished. They were surprised. They were overwhelmed. They were stressed by the whole thing. And when they finally have searched and scoured the city and they come to the temple and find their son, his response is, Mom, why were you looking for me? I mean, it would be easy to read this and think that he almost gave Mom a sarcastic answer. But we know that's not the nature of Jesus. So we have to understand that this would have been, Mom, I thought you knew. I thought you knew I would want to be here, that I'd want to be engaging in my father's business, in my father's house. I thought you knew. I thought you would understand. That was the perspective. Jesus just, it was coming alive in him that there was a mission and a purpose that he was engaged in. It's coming to light. It's growing. And this was a revelation point in the life of young Jesus. Jesus obviously seems to think that Mary, his mother, understood his actions better than she did. I mean, we have to understand that Mary didn't have the rest of the gospel. She didn't have the remainder of Luke when this happened. We know the rest of the story, so we kind of read that and go, yeah, classic Jesus, and we keep rolling. But to a mother, the nativity's in the background by 10 or a couple years, and I don't know about you, but my memory tends to fade pretty fast. And so that period of time has no doubt worn on the fact that this is not just my boy. This is not just a boy I'm in charge to raise. And so when I say that your father and I have been anxiously looking for you, that was just a natural Mary response. It's just a natural Mary response. And Jesus makes it very clear that he's coming to understand his divinity because he counters her father with his father. In his commentary on Luke, Charles Childers says that if Mary had fully realized Jesus' divinity, such knowledge might have interfered with her normal treatment of him. It would have changed a mother into a worshiper. 
It was the Father's will that His Son walk the same path of life as those He came to save. Had Mary treated and viewed Jesus as the Messiah and as her Savior the whole time, no doubt His childhood would have looked a little different. She'd have been a worshiper and adorner instead of a motherly figure providing care and love and discipline and guidance for a young boy. She didn't quite catch on. Picking back up in our text at 51, it says, Then he went down to Nazareth with them, and he was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. So even though Jesus is starting to get a picture that there's more to his existence here on earth than maybe just being a carpenter's son, even though he feels that stirring, he understands that his identity is different, he still subjects himself to his earthly parents and says he went down and was obedient with them. Kid City friends, if you're in the room, there's a message here. We've got to be obedient to our parents. And I'm 30 couple, and I'm still under that subjection too. We never grow out of it. But he was obedient. Even though he knew that he had to be about his father's business, he wanted to be in his father's house, he subjected himself to his earthly mother and father while he grew, developed, and matured. That would have been mentally, physically, and spiritually. He had to grow. He had to develop. What we're left with there is what reads like a pretty normal account of a normal kid with a little Jesus flair. It's a pretty normal story. And you know what? I think that's exactly the point that Luke was trying to make here. Because if you roll back to Luke chapter 1, we remember that this gospel is being recorded and it's an account given to the most excellent Theophilus. So anybody that was in Scripture that's titled most excellent, it generally means they're higher up in the Roman official, the governing power of the area in that day. Um, so a Roman official would have had a very good knowledge of Roman goddesses and gods and as well as Greek mythology. Uh, in that time frame, they had a God for everything. The sun, the moon, the stars, harvest, fertility, it, the, everything had a God, and some of them were pretty unique and weird. And so here comes a story of a normal boy who is growing and maturing, but yet has a sense that he's here for more. And that story of a boy in the temple would cut right across the grain of Greek mythology and Roman gods. That here was a boy, here was the Messiah. We can get some details from the birth, but still, he's born of a woman, grew, matured. He was a boy. And it really points to us, I think, this morning that the truth of Scripture, that the truth of Emmanuel, God with us, is that God became like us as well. That God with us, Emmanuel, Christmas, means that God became like us as well. So in the original context, written to Theophilus, not only is he aware that God has come, that's what Luke is trying to communicate, communicating that God became like us. He's not a strange deity over there that we need to offer strange sacrifices to. He was fully God and fully man. So not only cut intersecting Greek mythology and Roman gods, it would have intersected the Gnostic sect in that day which the Gnostics believed that spirit, things that were of spirit and of nature were good, but things that of solid matter like flesh and bones, people were inherently bad. And so they didn't really give Jesus a lot of credit as being good because he was flesh. They just assumed that he was bad. That was the Gnostic idea, and Paul dealt with that a lot as he traveled around, and you can read through the rest of the New Testament. Jesus becoming like us. 
it mattered then, and I propose today that it matters now. Jesus as man is not a throwaway doctrine. It was not then, and it's not now. It's pivotal to his mission and why he came. As we look at it today, I would propose four things. I would say that God with us, becoming God like us, first gives value to our humanity. Gives value to our humanity, our human experience here. Jesus being fully God and fully man, he sanctified every stage of life from innocent babe into childhood and on into adulthood. He grew, he developed, he aged, he matured. He lived in a hick town with a blended family and nobody was ever really sure who his daddy was. He learned a trade, held a job, supported his family, being a responsible eldest son. All these normal things mark the human life for Jesus, proving that true dignity, honor, and value are not necessarily derived from outward circumstances, but our inward heart condition and obedience to God. When Jesus comes on the scene into his public ministry and baptism, we read that just a couple chapters later. It says that when he was baptized, the heavens opened and proclaimed, This is my son whom I loved. With him I am well pleased. What was he well pleased about? His son who had lived a faithful, obedient life in obscurity to that point. That's powerful. That gives me value for the day-to-day mundane that makes up the vast majority of our existence here. Because what we normally study in the Gospels is just a short three-year window of Jesus' life. There's a big span here that had been sanctified and set apart for everyday, ordinary life. Jesus was still Jesus. He was still fully God. But he engaged in things like taking care of his mother, taking care of his siblings. We never hear of Joseph after our account, and so it's believed that he passed away somewhere between that account at 12 years old and Jesus' baptism. So as eldest son, he would have assumed the responsibility of the family. It's a normal life. But it's sanctified in obedience to God the Father. So the world may try to assign us today value based on social status, race, age, power, beauty, and a plethora of other things. But God says that we are loved and we are valued because we are created in His image. We are sons and daughters of the King. That's what gives us value today, friends. Not what you can produce, not your 401k or the car you drive. It's because we are created in His image. And He says you are loved. God with us became God like us. Secondly, I think it points to our great need of a Savior. God's great love for us is so demonstrated in the fact that Jesus humbly submitted Himself to the confines of humanity so that we could be redeemed. In Jesus, we have the perfect revelation of who God is. We see Him at work, how He interacted with the broken and lost, hurting world. If I'm honest and transparent with you today, as I read through the Gospel accounts, I come to know and come to realize that I'm not necessarily like Jesus in my natural abilities. Because I tend to be more like Mary and Joseph who left their kid at home. I tend to make those human mistakes. I tend to be like a salty old fisherman in Peter who is constantly sticking his foot in his mouth and going maybe just quite a little farther ahead than what Jesus wanted to be because I have my own ideas, I have my own initiatives. Or I tend to be like John who wanted to call down fire on a Samaritan village because they disagreed, they weren't welcoming. I tend to want to get even. I can see that there's a need there, that there's a gap, that there's a hole in my heart that I can't fix. It shows our need for a Savior. The difference between us and Jesus Christ is that He was born without a sinful nature. He was born perfect. 
We are born as a result of the fall. Adam and Eve's original disobedience brought in sin and death into the world, and we have been born into that pattern ever since. We see that bend even in small children, how they act. They want to receive their toy. It's mine, like you see it early on. That bend, that bent towards wrong, towards corruption, is powerful. It shows itself in so many different ways. And what we're essentially doing is giving honor and respect and worship to things that are not God. And the results of that are disastrous. When we give adoration and worship to things like our money, our career, and even good things like family or spouses, we're putting power and authority into those things that should have been to God. And the result is sin. It's brokenness. It's hurt. It's guilt. It's shame. It's all the things that we experience today. It's because we are bent We're out of alignment with why we were created, why we have flesh and bone. We were created to worship. We have need of a Savior. We face a chasm that we cannot cross. We owe a debt that we cannot pay. But yet God says we are loved and we are valued because the work of Jesus Christ made a way for us to be redeemed, to get back to worship, to get back to what we were created, to be truly human in His image. We have need of a Savior. God with us, becoming God like us, also provides opportunity. The author of Hebrews says in chapter 2, verse 14 through 18, it says, Since the children have flesh and blood, He too shared in their humanity so that by His death He might break the power of Him who holds the power of death. That is the devil, and free those who have all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest, intercessor in service to God, and that he might make atonement, he might make payment for the sins of the people, that debt we cannot pay. The author of Hebrews is saying, Jesus paid. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The opportunity that Christmas affords us, that Jesus coming in the flesh, means that he lived a perfectly obedient life all the way to the cross of Calvary where he bled and paid the payment that we couldn't pay. And he was buried in the grave and resurrected on the third day, conquering death and ushering in his new kingdom. His rule and reign is the universal truth today, friends. His resurrection sealed the deal that his narrative, his story, his reign is the story. It provides opportunity in that we can come to Him in our brokenness, in our hurt, in our guilt, in our shame, and we can lay it all before Him and His work on the cross. His bloodshed for you and for me is enough that we can be forgiven, we can be redeemed, we can be bought back from the grip of sin and death and shame and fear. Later on in the book of Hebrews, the author says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace and mercy with confidence, with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. 
The opportunity that Jesus affords us today is that it doesn't matter how messed up your family is, where you came from, what you've done, what shame or guilt or weight or burden you walked in the room with today. Friends, there is opportunity in Jesus Christ to be redeemed. And I'm not preaching prosperity that it's going to be all better instantly tomorrow. But when you can be reoriented, when that bend can be taken out of you and you can give proper worship to God the Father and start stewarding His love and His way through your world, it gives proper perspective for the now and not yet that we're stuck in. Because we're in this now God has risen, Jesus has risen, where it's now, but we're not yet in that the new heavens and the new earth has not come yet. Now, but not yet. We can have freedom and redemption and be brought back now. God coming, God with us, becoming God like us provides opportunity. And it also, friends, today points to our mission. We're not supposed to be saved, sanctified, and petrified in a trophy case waiting for heaven to come. We have a mission Jesus' time here on earth was spent in simple acts of love, speaking truth to power about justice and righteousness and beauty. I'm pretty sure that when Jesus taught us to pray, saying, Thy kingdom come and Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, I'm pretty sure He meant for us to be engaging that. And friends, that's not something I'm not trying to pep you up for a new new year talk. This is about being realigned with who you were created to be in Jesus Christ. Being fully human, getting engaged and worshiping God the Father and seeing His creative order go out and extend through your world through small, simple acts of love and obedience and kindness. That's part of my story because I used to sit in the back corner of the church as a young kid, didn't want to be here, living the way I wanted to live. I was giving my worship, my adoration to all things of the world, everything but God the Father. But yet people who were living the mission loved me week in and week out and believed in me and bared with me over the years until I finally came to a point of repentance. I have seen the mission work. And I'm here today to say we have a mission. We are created. We are loved because we have a purpose. And friends, the only way to get about that purpose is not trying to do more. It's not trying to be good enough. It's not trying to achieve that next higher level, that next rung to jump over. It's about being in total surrender to Jesus Christ. Let Him come in and forgive you, to redeem you, clean up the bad things, but the best news is He wants the good stuff too. And that's where mission comes into play. It's because He can take and redeem things in your life that you never knew would be missional. You can be a stay-at-home mom taking care of a couple kids and you might raise the next Billy Graham. That's mission. Our significance is not what we produce, it's who we are in the sight of God. We have a mission to engage in. only way is through surrender the only way is through surrender and that's going to look different for every one of us but he is the way he is the way friends the whole world in just a couple days is going to acknowledge jesus christ the entire world you say how's that preacher we're gonna have a new year celebration around the globe we're gonna celebrate 2020 very few people are going to stop and go what's 2020 2020 Well, it's 19 now, so we're obviously increasing. What happens if we go the other way? Well, if you go back 2,020 years, Jesus. So every time the newspaper prints a date, every time you sign a check and a date, Jesus. Jesus. 
Jesus. Friends, His reign is the universal truth today. Will you get in on it? Will you get in on it? As the band comes, we're going to sing one more song. It's just an opportunity. We have a couple moments in eternity to just pause. We can give thanks. You may have been a Christian for 50 years, and that is awesome. And we can just give thanks and say, thank you, Jesus, for coming. You may have come in this morning crushed under unbearable guilt or shame. Maybe someone is trying to take your value. Maybe someone has been telling you you're not good enough. There is a plethora of brokenness that we can come from, and it's real, and I don't make light of that whatsoever. But Jesus Christ has an offer today, friends, that we can be brought back, that we can be redeemed, that we can find forgiveness and healing. We can get back to what we were made for, what we were made for. It would be like me trying to drive my boat into the river and take it fishing, except I would use my truck. It's just going to sink. It's because it's, it's not what it's made for. When you put a boat on the water, it goes. What you were made for was mission. What you were made for is worship and adoration of God the Father. What you were made for is to see His order, His rule, His reign go throughout your world. And it starts with love. It's by the power of the Holy Spirit that we can love, that we can go through our world. So if you are coming in under unbearable brokenness, there's opportunity today to get back to what you were made for. There's opportunity today. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you today, Lord, that uh, we were not created for nothing, that we have a job to do. That's not works righteousness. That's not doing those things so we can be saved. It's doing those things because we're saved. Lord God, we just thank you for that opportunity. Lord, I pray for the brokenness that is represented in this room today. I know how much it breaks your heart, Lord God. And I pray that those who today are struggling would find healing and forgiveness in you today, Jesus. Surrender is a big word, but it's what you ask to say no to myself and say yes to you. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the opportunity that you present us today through the power of your Holy Spirit that you are leading, you are calling, you are pulling, you are tugging, you are offering us today a new way. You're offering the way of life, Lord. So I pray as we pause, as we sing praise of thanksgiving that, Lord, you would search our hearts today. And that during this song, if we need to do business with you, that we would not leave it unattended to, Lord. Thank you today for you, Lord Jesus. We ask these things in your most precious and holy name. Amen. Thank you again for listening here today. If you have any questions at all, feel free to reach out to us at info at a That's info at a if you happen to be in the Harrisonburg, Virginia area, we'd love for you to join us at 1871 Boyers Road in Rockingham, Virginia. We meet every Sunday morning at 9 and 10.30 a.m. in English and then at 11.45 in Spanish. Celebrate Recovery also meets here each and every week, Monday nights at 6 p.m. If you enjoyed the podcast today, please be sure to subscribe in order to get updates and new episodes.